Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Poll Quotes, a podcast from the Ryerson Review of Journalism. I'm Laura Howells. And I'm Jacob McNair. Thanks for joining us. It's a pretty challenging time for journalism. There's a lot of change, a lot of questions, but also a lot of possibilities. So here on Pull Quotes, we'll go behind the headlines to explore some of the pressing issues in journalism. This week on the show, can Canadian journalists really protect their sources? The RCMP wants a vice reporter to hand over all his messages with one source, an accused terrorist. Vice has been fighting the police in court, but what happens if the source is dead? And there could soon be some good news for press freedom in Canada. We'll talk about the new Journalistic Sources Protection Act that's on the verge of becoming law. You're listening to Pull Quotes. Thanks for joining us. In 2014, Vice National Security reporter Ben Maku wrote stories about an alleged Canadian ISIS fighter named Farah Sheridan. After those stories came out, the RCMP charged Sheridan with terrorism-related offenses and demanded Ben give up all his communications with him to help with their investigation. Well, Ben refused. And that kicked off a major court battle for press freedom in Canada, one that a lot of journalists have been watching closely. But recently, it's come to light that Sheridan might actually be dead. Ben Maku joins us on the line now to talk about it. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, for those who might not have followed this story closely, can you briefly recap how this all started? Who was Farah Sheridan, and why did the RCMP want your chat messages with him? So basically, Farah Sheridan, back in 2014, when I was deep reporting on ISIS online operators, I was linked up with him through uh, a friend of mine, uh, a colleague, and he was claiming to be the guy who burned his passport because Farah Mohammed Sheridan was famously uh, one of the, this Canadian who, in a, in a famous Islamic state, a famous Islamic state video, burned his Canadian passport. So I got linked up with him online through some social media accounts, and ended up chatting with him on Kick Messenger. And I did about three interviews with him. One of which he kind of explained his his intentions for going to the Islamic State or the so-called Islamic State, and that he was a recruiter and he was using social media. Gave kind of insights into how. Uh, how the, the the group was operating. And then one of the last ones I did, he, he threatened Canada. And then ultimately, the RCMP decided that they wanted all information uh, on him that I that I had in my possession. So it's basically source materials, which extended, you know, the wide, wide fishing net that they wanted from me. And they brought a production order against me in 2014, or they brought a production order against me in 2015. Uh, and I was under uh, a gag order because it was top secret, and I couldn't talk about it for nine months up until October 2015. So essentially, he's a he's an alleged terrorist who's also allegedly dead, uh, who the RCMP would like to convict on terror charges. And they came to you and basically said, give us everything that you have. We want to use this as yeah. evidence. And so, I mean, what did you yeah. think when you got that production order and they said, hand it all over? Uh, there was literally never one point the entire time that I thought about giving it up. It was always, nope, you're not getting it. Uh, and I was, uh, to be honest with you, I was really, I was uh, very upset about it. I was mad, not only as a journalist, but as a citizen, that they would risk this, this sort of spoiling of the, the journalist relationship with the source because they 
essentially needed to prove charges against this individual. I mean, what I had wasn't of national security or immediate national security value. This is just something that was dated. You know, it was what I had was already put out there. And then for them to come in and forcefully demand that I give it up is was just mind-blowing. Okay, so, I mean, Sheridan never wanted to be confidential. Uh, and some people might say, well, you know, this is an important investigation. Um, you know, you, this is a matter of national security. Why was it so important to you to say no and, and just refuse to give up any of that? Because he never would have spoken to me and provided the information that he provided if not for the fact that I'm a journalist who protects their information on sources. This never would have even happened. And essentially, you know, it, it wasn't just a question of whether I was revealing his identity or not. He was open to who he was. The thing that, that's upsetting is that what they're doing is turning me into a de facto arm of their intelligence law enforcement investigation on an alleged terrorist. And I'm a journalist. I'm not one of their agents. And that's, that's an issue. That's a real problem. So what, every single time, let's say a reporter's doing some great work into the mafia and the RCMP is getting stumped on their investigations of the, of the mafia. They come and just get the reporter's notes in the mafia because, hey, we need it. I mean, it's just absurd. Yeah. I, I mean, it sets a very dangerous precedent for yeah, future journalistic work. It does. And I, think, I don't think people realize it's almost worse than revealing the source. Why is that? Because we're being turned into investigators for the police. Vice went to court to fight this production order. And so basically, you have to go in front of a judge and argue that journalistic independence is more important to society than an RCMP terrorism investigation. What was that like? Oh, it was definitely surreal. I mean, uh, to think that it's kind of com come from this moment where I had these kick messenger uh, conversations. I did not think it was going to take me to a courtroom like this. Uh, it was also just, it was pretty enlightening to see the way that the judicial system works. I think it's pretty outdated. I think it's pretty conservative. I do, you know, we, we were, we were listening to the, the first judge, I believe it was McDonnell, and it was, became pretty obvious that we had to explain, or he wasn't completely sure what a tweet was or how kick messenger operated. I mean, this is, this is something that's really, you know, essential going forward in, in today's society. And, you know, the fact that judges were kind of misunderstanding the technological reality that we were in was troubling and it made me think well this is really not going to go very well for me is it okay so you fought it in court and, and it didn't go well for you you, you lost um vice yeah i lost twice yeah and you appealed it and lost again you were planning on taking this all the way to the supreme court right we have we've tried we've uh, we've already applied and we're waiting to hear whether they'll they'll accept it whether they'll give us leave to the supreme court so we should be hearing that fairly soon the issue is whether or not this should be dropped uh given that this individual is, is said to be dead by the most powerful military on Earth. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, a few weeks ago, the U.S. military said that Sheridan has actually been dead since 2015. Is that right? Yeah, 2015. Did... 2015. And also, this, is far, this, goes, this goes back, reaches back into not just when I was under the gag order, but when they charged them as well. So that's, that's very, very surprising to me. And it makes me question a lot of the legitimacy of what the RCMP was doing because in a good situation, their intelligence sharing should have, should have notified them that this happened back in 2015. So let's say that for two and a half years or whatever it is, they didn't know that, that one of the most wanted terrorists that is Canadian was dead and killed by their ally. 
So let's say they weren't told that. That's already a problem. If they were told that, that's a problem. So to me, it really, the RCMP owes us a lot of answers. I mean, there's been reports before that Sheridan were dead that have turned out to be inaccurate. I mean, do you think it's true that he actually has been dead since 2015? I think 2015 seems a little early to me. Uh, just looking at some of his, his activities and stuff I've heard from, from different sources. That said, uh, the reports for him being dead before were jihadist reports. These were things that were coming out of Syria from jihadist elements. It wasn't, again, an extremely active, powerful military that was hunting and killing terrorists and saying, we got him kind of thing. This was, this was coming out from the battlefield from his own people. And it turned out he was okay. So I think it's a bit of a different force of a different color, but, you know, it's possibly still alive. It really is. But I have to say, usually when the U.S. government says they killed a terrorist, a mid-level terrorist, usually the person is dead. So recently, Vice's lawyers have said that now that it's come out that Sheridan is dead, uh, they're asking the RCMP to drop the production order. And if they do drop the production order, they'll withdraw their appeal to the Supreme Court. But this is this is really potentially a very precedent-setting case for journalistic independence. I mean, are you worried at all about what abandoning a Supreme Court appeal could mean for journalism and, and other journalists down the road? Um, I think any judge, and I've been told this by people in the legal community, if we were to go to the Supreme Court and the RCMP, uh, and they are right now refusing to drop this, this, this case because they say they're not sure if he's dead or not, so they want to continue prosecuting it. Any judge, including Supreme Court justices, are going to be a, a little bit hesitant to hear a case and have taxpayers hear a case about somebody who's, who's allegedly dead. Because then inherently the question about what the production order is being asked to do no longer has this, <laughs> nearly the same value it did before. So it would be, if we do, once we do hear back the Supreme Court and they do want to, us to go forward with it, and we, and we go to court, I think the RCMP is going to have some questions asked of them by the justices themselves. I mean, now that he's dead, the, the actual decisions that they made previous to this, and also the RCMP's continued pursuance of it, taints the entire decision. Because one of, the, one of the arguments we made in court was, he might be dead, why are you even doing this to begin with? And it's, it's quite obvious that he, he might not be alive. And then to now have reports that he is, is, is really interesting. That was Vice reporter Ben Maku. After reports of Sheridan's death, Vice is urging the RCMP to drop its production order. And if they do, Vice says they'll withdraw their application to the Supreme Court. But Vice's head of communications, Chris Ball, says they're committed to this fight for press freedom and would look at getting involved in other attempts to overturn the precedent set by the Ontario Court of Appeal. Ben's case brings up some real concerns about journalistic independence in Canada, but Canada could soon get its first press shield law, and that could be a huge boost for press freedom in this country. Bill S-231, the Journalistic Sources Protection Act, is soon going to its final vote in the House of Commons. If it passes, this shield law would protect confidential sources and the information they give to journalists. Conservative Senator Claude Carignan introduced it as a private member's bill last year. Senator Carignan joined us on the line from Ottawa, and in the studio, we spoke to media lawyer Iris Fisher. 
And a quick note, we had some technical troubles, so the senator's audio gets a little hard to hear. Well, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Carignan, what inspired you to introduce a press shield bill? But in fact, uh, we have seen uh, leaks in the Quebec media where the police uh, spied the uh, information and uh, conversation of uh, journalists. So for me, it was a sign that uh, we are going on the way that uh, it's a danger for democracy and for uh, free press. Um, so I decided to uh, table a private member's bill and uh, inspired the protection like uh, the same things for uh, professional secret for lawyers, basically. And, and I, I use those uh, criteria to create uh, a new protection for uh, free press. Right. So this is after the revelations that uh, police in Quebec have been spying on several journalists. Yeah, and we have seen that also uh, with the RCMP, particularly with uh, Joël Denis Bellavance. So when it happens the first time, you think that it's uh, an uh, an, uh, isolated uh, situation, case, but uh, when uh, I've seen that it's uh, doing rapidly, uh, I realize that it's starting to make a breach of uh, confidence of the public in in this relation. Okay, so Iris, what would this press shield bill do? How would it change things for journalists who are working right now? The law will really do two things, uh, both both of which are are quite significant changes for for journalists and for the media. Um, and, And the first thing is that the, the, the bill creates a class privilege um, to protect journalists' confidential sources. And that's not something that we've had in Canada before. And what that means is the, the presumption will be that journalists can refuse to disclose confidential sources. And in order for a court or a body to, to nevertheless order that that, that that person's identity be disclosed by the journalist... There's, there's actually a, you know, there will be a, a burden on the person who wants that information to show um, that it, you know, it's something that they couldn't get in any other reasonable way. And also to show that the public interest in having that information outweighs the public interest in protecting a confidential source. And that's, you know, that's a, there, there's a, there will be a, a hurdle to getting that information and a journalist won't have to make the case every single time um, that this issue arises that their sources should be protected. There's a there's a presumption that that will be the case. And like I said, that's something that's really new in Canada where before now, every time a, a case came up, it was really decided on, on a case-by-case basis by the courts. And it was the journalist who would have to fight to keep their sources protected as opposed to law enforcement saying fighting for the right to have these sources. That's right. And and so the it would be up to the journalist to show the public interest in in protecting confidential sources. Um, and there were, you know, the, the courts have set out a test that had to be met. Um, but certainly there was a burden on, on the journalist and on the media organization to do that. Um, and it comes up in lots of different contexts. And so this is this is really a um, a sweeping change in that there will be this this uh, presumption, this class privilege to protect sources. And uh, it's also the case that under this new shield law, it would only be 
judges at the highest court that would be able to say yes to court or search warrants against journalists. That's right. So that's the other big change that the criminal code will be amended so that a, a search warrant um, against a journalist can only be ordered by a superior court judge. And so that the big change there is that otherwise a justice of the peace um, can order a search warrant um, or a production order, which is which is similar. Um, and in Ben's case, it was a production order, but the same idea. Um, and so that really just highlights that this is a search warrant or a production order against the media is an exceptional order. Um, it's an exceptional warrant, and it really requires um, a judge of the Superior Court to make that determination. Speaking of the media lawyer, how big of a deal is this? Well, I mean, I, this is really, it's, it's uh you know, as as the senator was talking, I'm I'm thinking to myself, this is a breath of fresh air uh, for for the media and, and for media lawyers like me, because for years, you know, there's 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 been some uncertainty um, in Canada, and, and we have clients who do very important investigative work and, and regularly have confidential sources. And, you know, we weren't able to tell them with any certainty that the law would protect their sources. And that what that sets up is a situation where journalists um, may have to be martyrs, right? They've given a, a promise to a source. And, and you know, most journalists would go to jail rather than disclose a confidential source. Um, and so now we'll be able to say to them, well, you know, this law doesn't mean there's never going to be a situation where a court won't order you to disclose a confidential source, but the presumption is that that your source will be protected. Um, and that's that's huge, and it's something that, you know, I think something like 30 American states have shield laws. Many other jurisdictions have shield laws, um, and, and Canada just hasn't had that, that protection for journalists until, you know, uh, hopefully soon. It's also sending a message to the population that, the, the, they will be protected if they ask the protection from the journalists and they could give uh, information with full confidence. And that will be, that's probably help uh, the media to receive more information to keep the government and public authorities in uh, accountability. Senator, I mean, as, as Iris was saying, there are several other countries and states in the U.S. that already have these kinds of shield laws. Why has it taken so long for Canada to start thinking about a shield law of its own? I think I think the people have the impression that they were full protected by the Charter of Rights and uh, the free uh, press. And with the different cases that we have in uh, last uh, 10 years, we realized that this protection was uh, less important and fundamental uh, than what we thought at the beginning. So that's probably gave us a false security about this protection. And just to add to that, I mean, we have, you know, we do have protection for free expression and specifically for freedom of the press in the charter. Um, and, And so, you know, from a media lawyer's perspective, journalist source privilege fits very clearly into that. But but on the other hand, we've had situations like in Quebec where justices of the peace are are ordering 
um, search warrants against journalists, very broad search warrants against journalists, um, as you know, as the senator, as the senator said, that inspired this bill. And so clearly, those the charter is not being applied on a day to day basis, and we need something like this. So, Senator, your bill passed the Senate unanimously, and in June, the liberals said that they would back it. I mean, that's somewhat rare for a private member's bill coming from an opposition senator. Was that government support a surprise for you? Not really, because uh, I, I think this issue is very important. And when we passed this bill unanimously uh, in the Senate, um, I realized that that would put a lot of pressure on the government and he was in a situation where uh, the government doesn't have choice to to take this issue very um, uh, to put a high level of interest on this issue, and the media also um, give this uh, uh, issue in in the public domain. And we also have the Chamberlain Commission in Quebec that uh, we have seen a lot of. Uh, uh, witnesses uh, and experts, so that's that's maintained that in the in the public domain. So with the with the public pressure, uh, with the Senate pressure, the opposition, uh, all we had a good uh, timing, if I if I could say, uh, to to adopt this uh, this legislation, particularly. So we're talking to vice journalist Ben McCoo, who has been ordered to give up his communications with a source to help a police investigation. Um, And this law wouldn't necessarily help him because his source never wanted to be confidential. Um, Iris, do you think this bill goes far enough? You're you're right in that the first part of the bill that that would create a a broad source protection, a privilege, only deals with confidential sources. And and Ben's source, of course, is not confidential. Then you know the source was in the story, and and the story explained a lot of what the the source told Ben. Um, that being said, the second part of the bill that deals with with the with the criminal code would help Ben in the sense it would have helped Ben in the sense that a production order like the kind that was ordered against him. Um, would would have to a, a judge would have to make that order would have to consider some additional factors in addition to what would have been considered. So there's you know yes it could it could have helped Ben. On the other hand, the fact that his source wasn't confidential, um, that was something that the courts both both the lower court and the court of appeal said really impacted their decision to uphold the production order. And yeah, that could still happen. Um, so I, I mean I think this. This bill goes a very long ways in protecting confidential sources. There are, um, of course, from a from the media's perspective, the media is is distinct from the state. The state has its own law enforcement um, mechanisms. It has public funds to do that to investigate crime, um, and so there is still concern that. Uh, even where a source is not confidential, if a journalist is co-opted into assisting law enforcement, um, it you know the the media can't won't be seen as as being able to do its job, which is to scrutinize public authorities. 
Um, and so there is still, you know, that concern will still be out there. I think that in every case, um, you know, the court will still have to consider the facts and, and the existence of a broad protection like this will, you know, hopefully help all around and will bring freedom of the press um, more squarely into focus for judges, even where the, where the source is not confidential. This year, Canada dropped on the Reporters Without Borders World Press Freedom Index. Uh, there's Ben Mackey's case. There's the revelations about police spying on journalists in Quebec. Uh, there's the case of uh, Justin Brake in Newfoundland and Labrador, who was charged after uh, unlawfully going on a construction site to report on protests at Muskrat Falls. When it comes to press freedom, Iris, where do you think the country should or could be doing better? Uh, well, I mean, certainly this, you know, this this issue with sources has has been an important and been one a big one, and it's great to see that being addressed. Um, I mean, one other another area that's uh, that's a huge problem for journalists is the problems with our access to information and freedom of information laws, um, which are in many cases very much a hurdle to getting government information rather than um, rather than a, a way to get government information. Um, and so that's something that, you know, I, that there have been many calls for the government to improve access to information laws. Uh, and we started off as leaders in that area of Canada. And now we are, you know, we're, we're not, we're viewed as laggards there as well. So that's, a, that's another big area. There's been some concerns about the bill defining journalists as people whose main occupation is journalism. There's been some criticisms that perhaps this definition is too narrow. Uh, I mean, what do you think are the implications of the government codifying and, and defining what a journalist is? And do you think this could be dangerous for future presidents? Yes, that's a, that was a big uh, issue. And we had a lot of discussion. And in fact, in the history, I think that uh, the journalists uh, had also a lot of difficulties to, to define what is a journalist. So that was a, that was not the, the easy part of the bill. Uh, but we decided to take the, uh, the definition of the uh, press council uh, because uh, we have to think uh, to the police, to the law enforcement, that they have to know uh, if they are in front of the journalists or not to be able to ask the appropriate authorization to the judge. Uh, so we have, we have to define a journalist that uh, we are able to see at the minimum if it's a, is a full-time uh, job or if receive retribution, it's, it's easy to say, look, that is main uh, job, occupation, and he is a, she is a journalist. Uh, if we go with the broad definition, uh, we could go uh, with the blogger uh, in, the, in their basement, and that's not necessarily the, the objective uh, to go uh, at, this, at this level, and it could be very difficult for law enforcement also. I mean, a lot of journalists right now work as freelancers um, to support themselves. They they report, you know, when they can, but they have to work other jobs. So the majority of their income might not actually be coming from journalism. That still might make them a journalist. Um, yeah, but I, excuse me. I, I think it's a freelance that you could 
determined that the he work for uh, or he have contracts with the uh, uh, important uh, media or uh, uh, press uh, organization uh, he will have the protection and at the end the judge will make the balance uh, of those interests Iris, any thoughts on this uh you know, I, I agree. I agree that, it, you know, courts will have to interpret these um, these def- definitions. And, you know, I think we, we hope and that makes sense to me that they would do so reasonably. And uh, many of, as you say, many journalists are freelancers, um, but are clearly, you know, working for major media organizations um, and, and should be should be covered by this. Um, and so I, you know, and I, I do understand the concerns about making this so broad that it would cover anyone who receives information and confidence. Um, so, you know, sure, I think we can, we could, we could quibble about exactly how it's written, and you know, is it is it clear enough? For instance, that a journalist includes a columnist or an editorial writer um, who may be conveying opinions rather than information. I mean, sure, there. Are probably small ways where it it could have been a little broader or a little clearer. But I mean, overall, I think this is a very important protection for, um, for for career journalists and for the for the, you know, the media who day in and day out, um, deal with confidential sources. All right. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. And an update on that story. Shortly after that interview, on October 4th, the Journalistic Sources Protection Act went to a vote in the House of Commons. The bill passed unanimously. All right, well, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on our very first episode of Pull Quotes. Pull Quotes is written, produced, and edited by Emily Pardo, Jacob McNair, and myself, Laura Howells. Executive producers are Sonia Fata and Stephen Trumper. Technical support by Angela Glover. Special thanks this week to Lisa Taylor. Poll Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism. You can check out more stories on our website at rrj.ca. Thanks for listening, and tune in next week.